0: Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. I hope you had a great summer. Now, since we started the show in January, there's been one name that viewers have suggested as a guest for our show, one name more than any others. So I'm very, very pleased that today I have with me the author, journalist, and broadcaster, Peter Hitchens. Thank you very much, Peter.
1: Pleasure so far. (laughs) You, uh,
0: You have quite a dedicated following. It's lovely to, to know that. <laughs> but I noticed that uh, when you do uh, uh, Twitter, which you do quite prodigiously, uh, you've managed this amazing thing of actually getting about 72,000 followers and no, you follow nobody. How do you manage that?
1: Well, I don't know. It's, it's, I didn't, I, the whole idea of following somebody is, is repugnant to me. So when right. I was offered the chance to do it, I didn't take it so and then people started going on and on and on about how I didn't follow anybody so it then became a matter of principle as for why people follow me you have to ask them why they did did that Uh, I can't tell you when you talk in
0: when you go to colleges to talk or universities or whatever uh, you know I I know that there's been some controversy around that you've been you know like more and more people no platformed or disinvited It's on the more
1: difficult because of the regulations which uh, student bodies impose on societies. Mm. And they often demand pledges of good behaviour on behalf of speakers, which no civilised person could conceivably give, so I just don't give them. Right. It makes it difficult sometimes. At, at Liverpool, I had, actually had to speak in the open air because... We couldn't uh, We couldn't find anywhere on the university premises where I was allowed to speak. It went off very well actually, and open-air speaking is, is a good exercise. It was great fun for everybody, but these regulations are pestilential. And then there was the University of Portsmouth, which just dropped an invitation to me in short notice. And then for some bizarre reason, imagine that having said I wasn't acceptable in that particular week, that I might come back some other week. <laughs> no, didn't know, I was not going to go back.
0: What were you actually meant to be talking about I've on that occasion? Right, uh,
1: uh, what they were uh, uh, completely and utterly preoccupied with was uh, was homosexuality a subject on which i have fallen almost totally silent because there's yeah. no it's one of those subjects about which there's absolutely no point in saying anything anymore it's, it's, mm. it's just you you just can't argue rationally about it so let's not bother mm. but when you do speak at those
0: events i mean going back to the idea of people following you and you know, holding you in great esteem do you ever find that people come up to you and, and their views have been changed by what you've said? Not that you are
1: after that. I don't think people come up to me. I have had experiences with people who, in in combat, have changed their minds in, as a result of it. And people who've said that various books of mine have altered their way of thinking on some subjects. Uh, but that's why I, I wrote them. It's a rare thing for people to do this. Mm. And, of course, it's the old Jonathan Swift rule always applies. You can't reason a man out of a position he wasn't reasoned into in the first place. And most people don't hold opinions because they were reasoned into them. They hold them for protective coloration or because it was what they were brought up with or yeah. what they saw on television. So you can't reason with them generally. In, in any case, people will often change their minds a long time after the event which caused the change of mind. That certainly happened with me.
0: Mm. What are the instances with you...
1: Oh, I took. I was, a, I was a Revolutionary Socialist and I ceased to be, but there was a very long period when I continued to be in outward and visible signs of Revolutionary Socialist, were. but within I was having severe doubts which I was fighting against because I knew, as anybody who seriously changes his mind knows, that as soon as I did it I'd lose an awful lot of friends and become very unpopular, life would become much more difficult and unpleasant. And it was easier not to even open the door that led to the staircase that mm. led to the exit that led to the change of mind, so you just you, you, you hold a long way back mm. from the steps of doing it and I understand this better than most people because i 've done it
0: do you think there's something different though now uh, compared to say like what well you've just described there with yourself if you take younger people now who may be at college the young the people you maybe talk to whatever events go and speak at um, it seems now that their views are held even more rigidly.
1: It's not rigidity. I was reasoned into my revolutionary position. I had been brought up as a traditional imperialist conservative. I grew up in a navy family. I was one of the last people on earth to be educated in the traditional fashion about English history and the geography of the world and and, and politics and all the other things that went with it. And I was persuaded out of it uh, by some very eloquent arguments, both listened to and read, and I changed my mind and became a revolutionary Marxist. And then I found that those arguments didn't hold up in practice. What's happened with the the young of today is that they have been, I don't like to use uncomplimentary terms like brainwashed, but they have been brought up uh, to believe a set of opinions. They've been taught very systematically what to think and Mm. very seldom have they been taught how to think. And so the whole idea of being confronted with somebody who doesn't agree with them isn't just, well, it's not a challenge or a a moment when you become curious. It's an outrage. Mm. Uh, How can anyone dare to believe these things which I've been taught from the very start are wrong? So they begin from that point of view. I'm quite impressed by the number of people who've escaped it or or, or Mm. who who have actually managed to find their way out of it. But I'm not surprised by it. And I'm, I'm in a sort of strange paradoxical way sympathetic to the plight of the people who who attack me there is one particular person who writes to me from a very very ferociously feminist point of view every few months absolute streams of of vituperation and and loathing and and I'm always extremely polite to her because I think that quite possibly the moment may come when actually she may be open to argument and 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 so why not Mm. I sympathize I can I I know I, I always I always sympathize with people really really Taking on a point of view and arguing it to its logical conclusion with all the force that they command. What's wrong with that, mm. ever?
0: But do you think, though, that when they are sort of so angry, you know, I think it was Melanie Phillips once said this to me. Why, why would they, get, why would they get so angry? It's because they might feel that you are right. Or well, that people are,
1: the people, the main reason, and again, I have personal experience of this. The main reason I feel we get angry in arguments is because they hear somebody expressing their own suppressed mm. doubts. And that is the most guaranteed way of infuriating so audience is saying something which they, they they've sort of suspected might be so but they would never ever admit to saying and, they, and, they, and as a result they don't really have any defense against it mm. so you can tell when they t- they will turn nasty at that point and you can tell you've struck mm, mm. a blow it's so it's when it happens it's quite satisfying
0: also isn't it just on this point as well when when you say that people young people now, have not come across disagreement. At the same time, also, there is, is there not this sense in which these are the views that a good person has, i.e., that if you don't have them, you're wicked in some way?
1: Yes, well, it's a sort of extension beyond, um, beyond Calvinism and Lutheranism of, of justification by faith alone, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we, we are made good by our opinions rather than by our actions. Yes. And, so it's not a new idea that people might think that, but it used to be you had to have the right religious opinions, now you have yeah. to have the right political opinions, many of which are in essence religious, yeah. and opinions which people have particularly about global warming are almost indistinguishable it seems to me from religious opinions. Mm.
0: It appears sometimes that there is this kind, of, well you've more said Lutheran, but but This sort of sense in which I am a virtuous
1: person by holding this is obvious. I mean, so many opinions are held for the purpose of virtue, and I I don't imagine any of us are guiltless of this, of publicly espousing an opinion in the hope that people will think that we're better than we are as a result of it. Uh, It's it's all part of the general state of sin in which we find ourselves, in which we want people to believe that we are better than we are. So I'm not again, I don't find this particularly surprising. I just think it's important to be able to tell it apart. Uh, from a serious argument. Mm. So if someone starts saying, I, I want to intervene in Syria because um, because I'm really outraged by the terrible humanitarian misdeeds of the Syrian government. Well, the humanitarian misdeeds of the Syrian government are indeed appalling. Uh, but it, it's to to make that a justification for for dropping more bombs on Syria than already been dropped on it seems to me to be pretty far-fetched. And so what we're really doing when we say things like this is we're saying, look at me, how yeah. good I am. I want to intervene. And instead of calling down thunderbolts and the anger of the Lord uh, on the Assad state, uh, what you want to call down is cruise missiles and uh, the bombs of the US Navy. Uh, but it's the same sort of thing, isn't mm. it? It has, a, it's fundamentally very, very similar to, to, to that sort of religious behavior. And it, it doesn't actually confer any virtue. And we all know, as we get older, there's only one form of virtue, and that's uh, that's fundamentally self-sacrifice mm. and self-reform, which you have to do in private anyway. With uh, if you
0: take again this, these sort of received opinions, or the opinions that the young have, or younger people have, if you like, that they tend to have on block, um, this revolves very much around identity politics, doesn't it,
1: really? It's I, ad- I don't really, I've, I hear the phrase, uh, but I'm not entirely sure what it means.
0: Well, isn't it where basically somebody is uh, increasingly
1: defined by one characteristic? Or, you know. there, oh, there is some of that, uh, and some people obviously find some solace in that. Mm. Yeah, Again, who can blame them? It's a, it's a lonely, frightening world if you can find some place where you've got comradeship and solidarity and, and something which makes you feel less alone and more important. Who can blame people for that? I don't.
0: But at the same time, don't you think it sort of, it, it rather sort of cuts society, maybe class once cut society horizontally and now, identity politics cut it vertically almost, don't
1: Well, yes, I suppose it does, yes. But again, if you, want to, if, if you want to create loyalties, then you need to have groups of people who feel distinct from other people who will be loyal. And mm. that's, uh, in, in the nature of politics, you find groups uh, which you hope uh, you can recruit to your cause and mm. and, and, and identify with. It's just another another way in which it's been been done in a society in which obviously the old class distinctions, which used to be so important mm. in politics, have dissolved into something completely different. So I, it's not it, it doesn't disturb me particularly.
0: I think there's a, there's the uh, academic John Gray wrote a piece this week uh, when he was talking about humanities in universities and how they were now basically, because of the march of identity politics, because of the kind of restriction, that essentially the humanities were beyond you know, beyond help.
1: Well, everything's beyond help. That's not, great, uh, that's not a great discovery as far as I can say. We live, uh, this is the really ridiculous thing about the modern West, we live in post-revolutionary societies and in most cases we don't even realize the revolution has taken place. It's been the Kierkegaardian revolution in which all the buildings remain standing but everything which, which led to their being built and contributed to their design and the whole society which supported them has been wiped away. And people walk around in it, still relatively prosperous, thinking a revolution must mean a red flag flying over the mm. post office and the barracks and the railway station and commissars in the streets. But it doesn't. Uh, modern left-wing revolution means this. It means the, the policing of thought, the, the deadening of, uh, of, of the academy, uh, the lack of serious debate or understanding, the suppression of disagreement. And everybody accepts it and you're surrounded by it and there is no, there is no cure for it. It's all gone, education's dead. Most of the media is dead. It's almost unwatchable, most of of what is put out now, particularly on BBC television. It's almost impossible for an intelligent person to sit and watch it, but luckily for that, and the number of intelligent, educated people watching it is very small, so they get away with it. Mm.
0: Would would you say, therefore, that younger people who Given this might be the case, young people should go off themselves, circumvent university, go off and find the class. Well, my advice themselves.
1: to the young in this country is to leave the country. But that's that, that's, and people laugh when I say it. But I, I've never been more serious in my life. And they say, where shall I go? I say, I don't care where you go. It's not. I'm a travel agent. It's not up to me. The point about this country is that in in the foothills of such a catastrophe that it's not a good idea to wait around and find out what it's like. If I if I were 30, I'd go myself, but I can't, uh, I don't believe you can go and live in someone else's country unless you can support yourself. Mm. It's too late for me to learn how to do that. So I'm stuck with whatever is to come. I just hope I die naturally before somebody breaks into my house and beats me to death for, 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 um, for, for whatever I happen to have in my wallet, which you know, is just a race between the one and the other for me.
0: You have called yourself Britain's
1: obituarist. Yes.
0: I mean, is that an ongoing obituary?
1: Well, I keep writing these books, which are, which amount, I've gone to my publishers and said, look, can we put it all together in one whopping great Dominic Sandbrook-style, breeze-block-sized volume and call it The Obituary of Britain? Which I think is a great idea, but they haven't taken me up on it. (laughs) But to be, it could could have a cover completely black, except for the words The Obituary of Britain in, in, in white and lovely 18th century lapidary script. But, uh, no, they haven't taken me up on that. No, everything I write is another chapter of the Mm. obituary. Mm. Death was pronounced long ago. But when you first started writing about it? Oh, I didn't think that. When I first started writing about it, I deluded myself into thinking it might make some difference. Right up to 2010, I thought that I could make some difference in this country. And then after
0: and that, what was what happened then? Well, I
1: believed in the I suppose six or seven years before 2010 that the the most important thing that Conservatives in this country could conceivably do would be to destroy the Conservative and Unionist Party, mm. which was the principal obstacle to Conservative politics. And I tried to persuade people that David Cameron offered no hope of any kind, and that indeed, if the Conservative Party could, could get back into government, it would be the loss of a great opportunity. It, 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 had, it had, at that stage, lost so many elections in a row that one more, and it would have fallen apart and yeah. would have ceased to attract any financial contributions. And as a result, there would have had to be a rethink among Conservative minded people about what sort of party they wanted, and we could have actually had a political party, which was genuinely patriotic and uh, and genuinely conservative morally and socially. And I couldn't get anybody. I approached other columnists. I approached people with politics. I, I, I had endless arguments with my readers about it. I wrote in my, my newspaper, I said, whatever you do in 2010, do not vote conservative. Uh, they can't win, which they couldn't, have, they couldn't have done in mm-hmm. 2010, in fact. Uh, there's nothing to be lost and you'd be far better off enduring another five years of Gordon Brown than saving the Conservative Party from its deserved doom, and nobody paid the slightest bit of attention. And I feel since then that my warnings have been entirely vindicated. Mm. Everybody hates the Conservative Party now even more than I did then, and with very good reason. And it has proved to be a disastrous thing, and we've got nowhere as, as a result of it. And all that time has been lost mm. when we might conceivably reversed uh, the cultural, social, and moral revolution. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm relieved of responsibility. I have no political engagement now. I just sit back and laugh. I think the whole thing is very funny.
0: When, though, you look at the picture, whether it's Britain's long death or the Conservative Party, I just want, on a personal level, um, can you still separate it from yourself, or does it actually make you sad? Does it make you.
1: Well, it used to make me terribly sad because I used to think I could do something about it. But once you recognise that it's just a, it's just a, a comedy of, of morons hurling themselves off high buildings and, and diving under buses and things like that, then you just watch and you laugh. It, it, is, it is actually quite funny. Mm. Uh, and it's easier to understand once you realize that none of the people involved understand what they're doing or have any clue as to what the long-term results of, of, what, they're, of what they're up to. The European Union, for instance, let's not get into that, but my friend Christopher Booker, who very sadly died yeah, recently, yeah. Uh, was at the end of his life in something near to despair about the inability of people on the supposed political right to understand the issues. Uh, in, in, in which they were embroiled. Mm. I feel much the same way. It is, I say, it is, it is comical. Uh, and there was, I don't know whether you've read Claude Coburn's masterwork of, of uh, autobiography, I Claude, there's a wonderful moment during some catastrophic international conference in the 1930s, when it's clear that everything is finished and that nothing lies ahead but doom, one of the journalists turns to another and says, well, in between the crisis and the catastrophe, we may as well have a glass of champagne. That is my motto. <laughs>
0: in the 1980s, maybe, when you maybe still thought that, for example, you know, the Conservative Party had hope, say, um, isn't the point that, if you look back at, say, the Satchi years, um, there was virtually no, what you might call, broadly cultural Activity at all. It was all economic wasn't it?
1: Uh, Yeah, well it was it it was it was economics and foreign policy Yeah, what did it for me? I was suspicious about the economics. I didn't I didn't think that it was I wasn't uh, I'm really a social democrat and I'm quite sympathetic to a a lot of social democracy and I didn't like a lot of what was going on and particularly was worried by what appeared to be the destruction of industry But I did feel that the Cold War position was right. And I did feel that, as I was an industrial correspondent for a lot of the period, I did feel that she understood better than most people that there was a genuine uh, infiltration of British politics by the the Communist Party, which is much more important than most people Hmm. realized then or understand now. And on those things, I was completely with her. And when it came to yes or no, then it was yes rather than no for those reasons. But no, it was it was it was it was culturally completely void. There was nothing, and morally completely void. There was nothing, and educationally as well. What an opportunity to mm. reverse circular ten sixty five, and not a thing done, not a single new grammar school uh, created, not a single old one restored, not even the direct grant system brought back to life. Nothing, a blank.
0: The, the, you see, this is one. Uh, I know you've written a lot about education. but am I'm, I'm a from a grammar school. Um, there's been this kind of very half-hearted movement, hasn't it, in, the, in recent years, that a form of grammar school should come back or whatever, but it seems that, frankly, it,
1: it, it does seem that very half-hearted. Oh, it's, it's, it's no-hearted. It, has, it, it, never, it never comes to anything, and I know it never will whenever I hear them say it, because they, they, don't, they, they don't really mean it. You can't actually... Uh, just have a piecemeal recreation of economic selection it has to be done as a as a direct national policy encouraged ferociously by a, a committed government mm. uh, rather than a few token supposed grammar schools in a few areas that that merely distorts it as you see in, in counties such as, as kent and buckinghamshire which are close to london and commuter areas you simply get a very small number of besieged grammar schools, which are not uh, simply are not typical of, of how grammar schools are operate in the national no. system, and actually become in themselves an argument against selection, yes. because short-sighted, ignorant, or 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 or, or, or frankly malicious people uh, portray this situation as if it is what it would be if we had a national selective yeah, system, yeah, which we yeah. don't. So I'm not interested in any of that. I, I was it, I, it also was terribly funny when Theresa May came out supposedly as the friend of the grammar schools because. I outed her some years ago was in her in reference books. She either didn't mention her education, her, her school education at all, or she claimed to have gone to comprehensive, when in fact what she went to was a grammar school that was turned into a comprehensive while she was there. Right. Uh, and, and and then to, to make herself out to be the apostle of the grammar schools when she's hid the fact that she'd been to one,
0: yeah.
1: seemed to me to be a bit much. I think I remember when my school went from being grammar to
0: comprehensive it was under Shirley Williams it would have been about 1977
1: you survived quite late in
0: that Yes, but there was a real sense amongst people because it was like I'd say half middle class half working class on the whole there was a real sense of fear and outrage why is this happening
1: why are you taking a school why are you going to destroy it basically well quite and a, a, and a lot of people have this experience. And the, there is actually an account of what happened to Theresa May's school, which was a Holton Park girls' grammar outside Oxford, when it was merged with the nearby Sir Henry Modern. And the, 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 the changes for the worse, which immediately and visibly happened. There are a lot of, in local histories a lot of accounts of these, of, of schools which, are, which had in many cases, for centuries been at the heart of communities. And they yeah, had yeah. been excellent schools because of the kind of schools there were where no fees were charged and where anybody who could, who, could, who, could, who could pass the test could go. These schools just being smashed to pieces in a few short years and, and, and turned into caricatures of education, and nobody could do anything about it. Everyone was powerless because the central decision had been taken, and it was going to be implemented come one night.
0: But this extraordinary thing was that it really they really were that educational system as it was then, really was having an effect, wasn't it, on social mobility? Well, in it really always was. Fact,
1: you, you can see there is, there is one set of statistics which is available in the, the Frank's report into Oxford University in the, in the middle 1960s, uh, which shows that the number of, of, of entrants to Oxford from grammar schools and their very close cousins' direct grants had been going up steadily since 1944. And on, the, on extrapolation it would probably have hit the 70s by now without any yeah. aids, yes. speci- no special provision, no, uh, no concessions made. They would just have got there and pushed aside the products of the, of the, uh, of the public schools as they were doing. And, and anybody who was there at the time will tell you that there was this revolution going on. Mm. And uh, I went to play Glass University in the early 70s and I was surrounded by young bright, working class young men and women for, with the same grammar school province. I checked the figures f- a couple of years ago, and it was so, it was as I imagined it had been, and then within a very few years after, after the, the comprehensiveization began, the, the number of private school entrants began to rise, and the number of comprehensive school entrants, who of course came from comprehensives in well-off areas, began to rise. And those, those young men and women who I saw were the last to have that chance. You gone. see this now
0: reflected in areas that were always traditionally very meritocratic, such as journalism, for example.
1: Oh, yeah, you do. But it, it's though in fact, journalism still has some roots up for the non... Mm. Um, because it's a trade, not a profession. There are still some roots, and, and, and most of the, of the really distinguished reporters, and particularly in the areas of news in journalism, have not come through graduate training schemes, but have come up for, out, of the, out of the grad schools, straight into the newsroom. Mm. people, you know, and, and it, it's, it, it's still just, put, but of course the grammar schools which used to feed them in have largely gone, so this is rarer and rarer.
0: The thing is, is it, we're talking about the structural, you know, the way that the system was actually uh, uh, structured at that time. Uh, the crisis in education, that we're maybe now having the effects of, was not just about that, was it? It's sort of schools in a way changed, they didn't, they did, didn't see their role as passing on anything anymore?
1: Well, that, that, uh, th- th- there were several, as with almost all changes, there's no, there's no single cause. Mm. And the thing which overwhelmed the grammar schools, and in fact a lot of the secondary moderns, which, were, which are now much calumniated and were much better in many cases than they thought to have been, uh, was the great, what, what we called in this country, the baby bulge. It's now a, a term that's been overwhelmed by the American term baby boom. But it, it began to f- feed into the schools uh, a- about the secondary schools in the middle 50s and what was really needed was a large program of opening new grammar schools and indeed new secondary moderns as well to cope with the capacity but nobody did that and so the 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 system was overwhelmed by numbers Mm. and the the conservative party at the time was not particularly ideologically committed to grammar schools because so many of its senior figures sent their children to private schools and Mm -hmm. they didn't really understand or care and the Labour Party was going through uh, an egalitarian spasm which was making it more and more hostile to them. So they, they were basically left unexp- unexpanded. In the early 50s, the, for instance, the, the, the Gurney-Dixon report recalls, I think, that, that two thirds of children in grammar schools in England and Wales were from working class homes. Mm-hmm. You would not find anything no. remotely resembling that in the so-called good comprehensives of today. But it was so, but it was the it was the bulge and the numbers which overwhelmed it and the unwillingness of a of a not particularly intelligent or sensible government to do anything about it. And all kinds of sins followed from that. But we could spend an entire afternoon discussing the
0: you know, No, but I mean this is, this is the root of everything really. It? It's the root of it? a
1: lot. The, but the other root of everything is of course the decline of the uh, the decline of the married family and a mm. stable family life, mm. particularly among the poor. Mm. Uh, which, which got going shortly afterwards, and which I did deal with it at, at some length in my 1999 book, The Abolition of Britain. But it, is, it, it, it remains the other great revolution. Uh, because, of course, both these, the education and the family revolution, both affect the young, completely transform upbringing, education and, uh, and socialisation. So you, you have a completely different kind of person that grows up in the, yes. in the country in, in, in which they live, from what came before. And uh, knowing nothing about the country as well? Increasingly now, yes. Uh, or knowing things about it which are misleading in my case. And I think that, they, that you often find that people have been, have been taught a version of the past which is, is so partial that they can't really understand properly what it is that went before what they now see.
0: On this p- point as well, um, so you were very politically active in the 60s, weren't you, and then the 70s? I, yeah, I, began, I,
1: I, I began, I suppose, I could call it politically active really after about 68. After that's it. Before that, I was just a troublemaker. If you if
0: if you take that, that period as being, if you like, the start, maybe, or, or round about the start of what you would call the Cultural Revolution. Oh, it no, Britain. it had begun well before that. Right. Right.
1: And it, in many ways, it has its roots in, in the First World War. and. And uh, uh, before that, in the Bloomsbury Group and the Fabian Society, mm. so it, it's the ideas that it that, that eventually came to pass in the fifties and sixties, whether they be Edmund Leach's attack on marriage or or the the growing desire for comprehensive education on the left or uh the sexual revolution Mm. these were being espoused by people such as roy jenkins Mm. and anthony crossland in the late 50s and were beginning to come to pass in in the 1960s the thing about the 1960s the really the high 60s as i call them right at the end 68 69 70 is that people went further in that period than, than than they'd ever gone before and indeed a lot further than they were prepared to go in the years afterwards 1973, the, the oil shock, the Yom Kippur War and what followed it, put a stop to it all and, and chilled things uh, down quite a bit. So it, it, it took a very long time for us to get back uh, in terms of cultural revolution to, to, to the really frenzied levels that they were at in, in, in the late 60s, which were often in rather isolated places, like university campuses and parts of the capital city and little you know, corners of culture like BBC Two and so forth. But they then became enormous. And, and general. But it wasn't, it hadn't just begun out of nothing in the sixties. No, did no, no. there were an awful lot of ideas which had been seething. But of course the the, the advent of, of television and the which was in many cases dominated, particularly under Hugh Carlson Green at the BBC, dominated by people with sort of Fabian Bloomsbury radical ideas, uh, meant that instead of just having the Bloomsbury group. Uh, talking to each other and in, in, in mm. novels that nobody read, mm. and in gatherings in in in, in London s- squares, the Bloomsbury Group suddenly gained control of the national transmitters. And were able through what a thought. able through well I mean particularly <laughs> through, particularly through drama and yeah, the yeah, Wednesday yeah. plays and the and, and, the, and, and all the, 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 the and, and of course through the supposed satire programs that was the week that was and so on and so forth to pro- to project onto a much larger number of minds ideas which had previously been restricted to a very small number of intellectuals
0: would you say that uh, Actually, you talk about the Bloomsbury Group, interestingly, you know, you've, if you go back that far, you, you had Gramsci or whatever in the 1920s. But by the 1960s, this had become this, this slogan of the long march through the institutions, hadn't it? Well,
1: Gramsci is, a, is an interesting thing because he, he, he was one of the very earliest people on the revolutionary left to understand that the Soviet experiment had been a disaster. Mm. He went there, he saw it was a catastrophe, he came back, he told his comrades in the Italian Communist Party, this is not, we can't get anywhere like this, we, if, it, it's, it's doomed to fail, it's a millstone around our necks, if we're to make any real progress, what isn't necessary is, he didn't use this term, but it is, is, a, is a cultural and moral revolution, so the people who we're trying to preach to will be more receptive to our ideas. But as things happen, the conservative, prosperous, Christian working classes of Europe will not ever mm. uh, by Bolshevism as an idea in which he was absolutely right. And that's why he became so important because he, 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 his idea of hegemony and his idea of taking over the, the ideas of society uh, was, was one which became very appealing to the the new left in the universities in mm. the 1960s. And they had the ideas and then they met Gramsci I think rather than the other way around right. and he became a sort of right. flagship. But this is this is coincidental really, That the, the Bloomsbury's and the, the, the Fabians who uh, had their own ideas about overthrowing the, the, the mores and, and system of society, uh, working in a sort of almost blind way towards a similar destination. They all come together in the 1960s as a series of forces. I think it was, uh, was it, it was um, one of the German revolutionaries who actually came That's up. That's it, yes. it was indeed. Yes, was in Dutschke on the term of the, 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 yes. the, the, term of the, the long march. Uh, it wasn't Gramsci, but it's associated with him. But there has undoubtedly been a long march. Well, yes, but this is this is the
0: interesting point. You know I was more. on it,
1: right. And when I set out, in, in, when I first went into journalism, I was fully intending to 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 gain the necessary skills to to. Uh, to spread the revolutionary message through, through newspapers and the media. That was what I was intending to do. Uh, quite a lot clear. of that, your that, fans was my, that was my intention. I think I was more focused than most people. Mm. I, n- most of the, I mean, it's extraordinary how many members of Blair's cabinet were actually members of, of, mm. of Trotskyist or communist organizations that we know about. And I suspect there were probably more who, who, we, who we don't know about. But I, because I was a member of a revolutionary organization, I was more focused. Uh, more conscious of what I was doing, but mm. our ideas spread very, very widely. When I was at the University of York in the nineteen seventies, we we became, in the period when I was there, we became the dominant political organisation on campus. If people wanted to talk about left-wing politics, it was to the International Socialists they turned. Uh, they came to our meetings, they read our publications, they listened to what we, they might have joined. Mm. And I don't believe that they ceased to be in favour of. Of, of some sort of revolution when mm. they went off into the world. I think they continued to be. And, but they'd learnt through the processes that we all, we all learn about life uh, that you don't do this by selling the socialist worker on the street or going yeah. on marches or picket lines. You do it by the slow, gradual process of inserting yourself into society and making yourself influential. And about 25, 30 years after we all left university, there we were, all in mm. position. And in many cases, it's livid that the, that the political government of the country was in the hands of what was formerly a Conservative Party, which is one of the reasons for the sort of red glow revolutionary sensation when the, when the Blair government was elected. It mm, was, it mm. was, uh, all the left-wing people I knew behaved as, as, as if there'd been a red dawn. Mm. They were completely overwhelmed mm. by this. I just thought it was silly. But the, the I didn't realise at the time that they were actually right. What <laughs> was yes. red dawn.
0: There was a very, uh, I remember Matthew Paris, of all people, saying, this was a, in one of his columns around the time, that, during the Blair thing, that there was something sort of slightly, he put it alien about them. I, I uh. think meaning there was something that just did not feel like before.
1: Well, it wasn't like before. I, Matthew was often very perceptive uh, because he does allow himself to think, but the, the, what, what I had been told by, I say who it is now, because he, he, he subsequently died, uh, it's called Philip Bassett. He, he'd been an industrial correspondent as, as I had been, and we were, we'd been good friends. But he suddenly announced a few months before the 1977 election he was going off to work for Blair, and we, we realized after this we were not going to be able to have much to do with each other because it was going to be, a, if not an actual friendship buster, it was going yeah. to cool thing So we went for a drink together, and as it were, part on good terms. At the end of it, he said, "You have no idea." how extensive Mm. the Blair Project is and how deep it is. And then a few years later, a a character called Peter Hyman, who was very close to Blair, wrote an article in the the Observer quite recently actually, which I often quote, saying that Blairism was far more revolutionary and and radical than Jeremy Mm. Corbyn. That again, it was an enormous project to change the country, and I think it was. And nobody really understood at the time just how extensive it was, including probably Blair himself, who although it emerged a few years ago, uh, had actually been at a Trotskyist University, which if that had come out at the time would have destroyed him, but now nobody cares. Uh, I, I don't think Blair fully understood it because he wasn't very bright, but a lot of the people around him understood this was an enormous moment in, in history in which the, the actual, the thinking I won't say Marxist because probably in most cases they, it would it would narrow them to call them that the thinking radical left finally got their hands on the leaves of power mm. uh, in of a, in a political power as well as cultural power and as well as broadcasting power and as well as educational power and they were in a position to change the country and they did and they changed they changed it economically as well as uh, as well as culturally and huge amounts of of, uh, of uh, of money was shifted from one place to another by Gordon Brown in ways which which did transform society, which people un- underestimate, as well as all the cultural and moral stuff. I think as well that-, that uh, It was a revolution.
0: Yes. It, it's interesting as well that there was this moment, wasn't there, which was, I think uh, it was not intentional, but the, the, one of um, Blair's speech writers, Andrew Neither, right, pointed out, oh, there had been this real attempt to have social consequences from mass migration. Yeah, well, he well, he to said change, that,
1: there this, that there had been this discussion. He, mm. he, he just outed it in, a, in an article in the Evening Standard, and the, which has ever afterwards been a terrible embarrassment. It was one of those v- moments, a bit like the Peter Hyman uh, mm. article in the Observer, where, where for once people spoke directly of what it, of what it was that, 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 that had been going on, uh, rather than leaving us to work it out. And I think it's, it's it's an interesting revelation because just of just how explicit it was, but who can doubt it? I mean, when I was a revolutionary socialist, for instance, we were very much in favour of large scale immigration, not because we particularly liked immigrants, but because we thought we didn't like Britain. Yes, exactly. And we thought that if we had large numbers of people in Britain who were who, who, who from outside, it would make it our task of, of changing the country easier. It makes it's 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 rational. It makes perfect sense and it would make perfect sense in a new Labour context as well. So for Andrew neither to have said that, as he did, was, uh, and I've often, I've done what I can to give it the widest possible circulation because it seems to me to be a very, very interesting historical document.
0: It's, it's a huge thing, but also, as you say, at the time, actually, considering what was being
1: said, remarkably underreported actually. Well, things are, I, I was just mentioning this, when, 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 when Blair told Peter Hennessy on Radio 4, yes, I was at Trotsky University, Nobody reported it except me. Mm. Nobody. Mm. I mean, by any standards, that's an interesting thing. Isn't it? Mm. But not a word. Mm. It's extraordinary. I'd, some things. D- you mustn't assume that just because something hasn't been reported, hasn't happened. Oh, no. You mentioned there about. I mean, I'm finding fascinating. You're talking about
0: actually. You wanted to go in to one of our institutions, if you like, the media, or whatever, and you wanted to spread the word. Uh, if you look at the kind of, if you look at the, our, the cultural output now, and and how. In plays, we mentioned films, whatever. Um, I've noticed that in your column, uh, in the Mail on Sunday, you mentioned films quite a lot. Uh, I, I want to ask you, really, first of all, do you avoid now looking at certain things because you know it's just going to make you angry because of the subliminal messages? Or, actually, I mean, are, are you a great film man? I mean, I, I speak as one who, who is. I, I'm a great
1: well, I, I love going to the cinema, though. I'm usually disappointed.
0: You, no, but you, but you keep going, actually. I've noticed that you do actually write... Well, there's poetry. a
1: very simple reason for that, though. What's that? Well, you try illustrating a political column. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But do you actually find film I- always provides you with... You no, know, you can say something. There's always something interesting to be said about a film. And yes. usually it produces a, a, a good, attractive illustration. But it, uh, it, it, and, and it, it solves that problem. That's all. It has no... It's, 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 it's no more complicated than that.
0: But do you find you actually sort of like, do you bother now, for example, I'm talking about the results maybe of a culture of it. Do you bother with the theater? Do you bother with- Well, I'm not a
1: Londoner, so the theater is, is is is, is, sort of, is such an expedition. I can't really mm. be bothered most of the time. Mm. Uh, it's too far to go. It's, it's a night.
0: I suppose the point really I making is the drama or plays or films, they tend, if anything now, to just to parrot,
1: the orthodoxies of the establishment on the whole. Well, yeah, that could be fun sometimes. though, can't. I mean, some of them are quite. David Hare is quite good some of the time. Mm. I don't. Um, I remember going to see Pravda years and years ago when the National Theatre was new, and and laughing at the wrong bit. I was the only person. I was the, probably the only person who actually worked in Fleet Street in the in the theatre, and somebody <laughs> said something anyway. It was actually very funny, but it was only funny if you knew Fleet Street, and, mm-hmm. I, and, and it was funny in quite a conservative way. And I laughed, and everybody in the theatre turned and stared at me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I, some, some, some of the, 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 as it were, the radical playwrights are quite, are quite mm-hmm. good and uh, in, enjoyable in their own. But I just don't, because I'm not a Londoner, going to the theatre is something which I don't do mm-hmm. all that much of. I, the, there are wonderful, sometimes, performances of Shakespeare in the courtyard of the body and in Oxford where I live, which is architecturally exactly of the time of the plays. Yes, yes. Completely yes. perfect, which I will go to. And increasingly, when I go to Shakespeare, I take the text. Right, uh, because it adds so much to it, but uh, and that I will still enjoy. And also, the the other luxury of Oxford is the, an awful lot of open air Shakespeare in the college gardens, which is another great luxury. But going to the theatre as such, let say, as a Londoner's thing, I don't really do it. Being Britain's obituarist, to go back to
0: that point, um, I think I have sort of asked you this, but you know, when you go
1: on with your life now,
0: you, you can you still enjoy? your Britain, as it were?
1: No, I don't, it's not a question of enjoying my Britain. I'm a very fortunate person by the standards of most people and I live a very fortunate life, which I won't go into in any great detail, but I'm, for the moment, relatively insulated from an awful lot of the things which are happening mm. uh, to other uh, to my countrymen and countrywomen. Uh, but it doesn't, the fact that I am fortunate doesn't blind me to the fact that most people are not. Mm. Uh, and if it did for a moment, then the the letters and the telephone calls and the emails that I get from people in the more blighted parts of the country all the time would very quickly remind me that I, of just how fortunate I am and how untypical my experience is.
0: Well, there are those people, those followers again, coming back to you. Um, Peter, thank you very, very much for coming and uh, talking to us. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, well, thank you, very, you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Um, that's it for... So what you're saying is this week. And please remember to subscribe, won't you? And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.